Welcome to Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm Amy Allison. In each episode, we'll focus on the critical issues that you're just not going to hear anywhere else during this pivotal election season. I'll be joined by smarty pants political experts and commentators, by activists and leaders who all will share their political intelligence with the rest of us. Today, we're talking race and politics, the tectonic shift in political power, and the epic battle for the future of our country. And we're going to talk about how the Democratic Party's got to let go of their old school thinking, really change, and put people of color at the center of their work and campaigning, that is, if they want to win. I'm joined in our San Francisco Bay Area studio by Steve Phillips and Maria Echeveste. Steve Phillips is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and he wrote the book, he wrote the book, Brown is a New White. It's a New York Times and a Washington Post bestseller. Brown is a New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. Maria Echeveste is one of the highest-ranking Latinas to ever serve in a presidential administration. She was deputy chief of staff for President Bill Clinton, overseeing issues of immigration and civil rights, among other issues. She's currently a senior fellow at the University of California at Berkeley Center for Latin American Studies. So, Steve and Maria, I want to welcome you to Democracy in Color. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having really us. Really excited to be here. Yeah. yeah, it's great. Congratulations on the success of your book, Steve. Uh, I'm sure everybody's asking you, what is Brown as a New White? What do you really mean, essentially, by that title? Well, we're trying to demonstrate that the fundamental pillars and building blocks for electoral majority in America now are rest in the communities of color, the largely growing communities of color. And so just as like in fashion, you know, black is the foundational color. In politics in this country, white has been foundational for all these centuries, really. And so now we're at a, sample, at a point where people of color have to be the first thought and not the afterthought. And so that's what we really mean by brown is the new white, is that the population of the uh, Countries, communities of color have grown from 12% of the U.S. population in the 1960s to 38% today. 46% of all of Obama's voters in 2012 were people of color. And so to win in this new multiracial era, we have to invest in, mobilize, and build this foundation on the communities of color. And that's what the point we're trying to make, and that's the argument we're putting forward, and it's the analysis we're sharing with a lot of the data and the lessons of what has actually worked over the past um, eight years. Mm. Maria, what do we need to know about the Latino electorate right now? Well, actually, I want to start to to point out that it's actually amazing that Steve had to write this book in 2016 when, um, as he well documents, if you looked at the trends, this should evident, for, especially for those who care about progressive causes, about a progressive agenda. And the fact that in 2016, uh, many of us involved in the political process are having such difficulty getting investments into these communities, it is mind-boggling to me. So going to the Latino electorate, that's a perfect example of why the way in which politics, electoral politics, campaigns are run, they're looking for the the political consultants. They have a bag of tricks. They know what to do. The Latino community is racially, ethnically, 
generationally, linguistically, geographically diverse. It's not a monolith. People say that all the time. And yet, people really need to understand that there are people here that are 300 and been here for 300 years and people who were got here five years ago or less. I'm sure that all has to do with their ability, the campaigns and the party's ability to even get people's attention, get, get them in the mix. And, and frankly, I started in politics and uh, at a national level in 1992, and the reality was it was easier then because you basically had Mexican-Americans in the Southwest, you had Puerto Ricans in the Northeast, and you had Cubans, Cuban-Americans in sort of Florida and a couple pieces in New Jersey. And that was a relatively – today, it's, it's all over the place. In the New South, we talk about immigration, new destination states. All of this is to say that if campaigns and progressive – uh, leaders really want to engage this population, they need to make the investment in understanding who they're talking to, what their issues are. The majority of them are uh, native-born, English-speaking. So the whole idea of translating things to Spanish is just a it's, – it's a no-go. It's a non-starter. It's I'm, a, sure, I'm sure in these rooms that you're in, in the political conversations, and Steve, I know, uh, when you go to D.C. and you're, you're, you're sitting with people, you know, are people getting it? Well, part of the problem is we're not in the right rooms, right? And so the rooms that we're in, you get – um, some rhetorical. There's a, I think, I mean, to be fair, there's a spectrum, I think, within the Democratic Party and the progressive movement. But overall, this point what Maria is saying, that people not getting it and not investing is um, startling and profound, right? So I've just been you know, crunching a lot of numbers looking at what's been publicly announced that's going to be spent um, on the progressive side, on the independent side, so separating out from the candidates, which is another question. Close to $200 million has been outlined between Priorities USA, the Independent Super PAC, Next Gen Climate Independent Organization, Labor's talking about doing $50 million, Move On's talking about doing a multi-million dollar entity. Out of that $200 million, there is $0 allocated at the moment for black voter mobilization. The little bit for black radio and maybe a little bit for black digital, but nothing for black voter mobilization. Wait, that flies in the face of what I understand about the black electorate. Just how, we talk about the new American majority, where are black voters in, in, in the whole context of what the new American majority is? So if you look at Obama's election in 2012, which is what I use as the proxy and the percentages to, add, to identify, because this is after the excitement of hope and change in 08, Five million fewer white voters voted for Obama in 2012, 2008. So I think that's a good illustration of what the new American majority is. 23% of all of Obama's voters were African American. More African Americans voted for Obama than white men voted for Obama. Um, and so that's the one of the key pillars and cornerstones of this um, uh, constituency. Um, I mean, the rest of the overall majority is Latinos. Um, Asian Americans, Arab Americans, Native Americans, and progressive whites. And progressive whites are not an um, inconsequential grouping. There's just so much time spent chasing moderate to conservative whites that we're not appreciating the progressive whites who are there. But the folks who are making the decisions around where to target. So the other uh, set of numbers that I'm just looking at more recently, there, are, there were 5.8 million swing voters 
people who made up their mind in the last 10 days in 2012. Um, they don't have a racial breakdown, but I'm sure it's overwhelmingly white because black folks were not undecided heading into about that. About Obama. Yes, yeah, correct. Very, very election, sure about right. uh, reelecting President Obama. So 5.8 million swing voters. There are 10.4 million people who voted in 2000, 10.4 million people voted uh, in people of color who voted in 2012 but didn't vote in 2014. So you can choose to either go after the 5 million mainly white swing voters or to go after the 10 million voters but who actually didn't come out. And on top of that, there are 7 million more people of color eligible to vote now than were, in, than were uh, eligible in 2012. So yet 75 plus percent of all the money that's going to be allocated to be spent is to be going after these white swing voters. I want to go back to the uh, get back to the issue of spending because it's something near and dear. And at this point in uh, 2016, decisions are being made, uh, very important decisions. But when we look at, Maria, the 7 million eligible voters, uh, you know, we're, sit- we're sitting in California who's just about to have uh, a primary. You know, are we seeing Latino voters, for example, a big effort where people are looking at a candidate like Trump <laughs> going to go into register? Getting, are we going to see that 7 million eligible actually becoming voters in, uh, for the primary or for November? Not without some investment and attention. And I think the mistake that is – I wouldn't want to bet the ranch – on a belief that because Trump will be on the other side, that that will motivate Hispanic voters in particular and other communities of color to come out. And I'll give you my reason for that. People look at at California and what happened with Proposition 187, which was the anti-immigrant initiative, and point to it as the beginning of the end of the Republican Party in California as Latinos registered and voted. What people forget is the Proposition 187 passed. And people needed to invest in California in the following two to five years in registering, in naturalizing Hispanics who had not yet become citizens. So there may be lots of anger and lots of concern, but directing that anger takes energy and resources. So I'm not confident that that has been done to date based on what I know of the uh, nonprofit C3, 501c3 organizations that do nonpartisan voter engagement, or even the 501c4s, which are, can have a more edgy, an edgier ed, um, point to how they get their messages out. They're, in terms of Latino groups, which are the ones that I'm most familiar with, the money's not there. The money's not there. How could the money not be there when you have uh, a Republican candidate who has voiced you know, his, his statements are so outrageous. And because so- I think what's going to happen, as happens every friggin' year, <laughs> every election cycle, is they're going to wait until after September and spend money and uh, assume that that two-month period, that eight-week period, seven-week period is going to be sufficient to motivate people to come out. Which means that you were going to try to cram in all the voter education. One of the reasons Latinos don't vote at the levels that they should, given their numbers, is that there is a lack of information about the actual voting process. They're intimidated by the process. They haven't grown up in families in which voting is just a normal course of things. 
that's that takes time. You can't do it in the last month before the election. Right, and 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 frankly, the well, I think there's two huge problems on the progressive side, and they're related. And so I've increasingly become to describe the progressive movement in the Democratic Party as having a near apartheid structure where you've got an overwhelmingly large number of people of color who provide the composition of the grouping, but almost universal monochromatic leadership in terms of white folks running almost all of the entities and organizations that have large budgets to, to, to uh, spend. And then that gets tied into the strategic decisions that are made around which groupings of voters are more important. It is undeniable by looking at the proposed spending allocation that the people who are in charge of running, at least on the independent side, the uh, progressive and democratic operation believe that white swing voters are more important than voters of color. If the investment's not right, could Trump win? I am very, very concerned. I actually do think that uh, all it takes is lack of turnout. And um, there's a lot of anger and anxiety out there. And Trump has been successful in having that anger and concerns about inequality and lack of opportunity be directed to the other. It's easier to blame the other as opposed to actually looking at the structural problems right. within our... the other. It's the Mexicans and the Muslims. Right. <laughs> right. It's, so, very yeah, so. it's very specific. But when I heard him talk about uh, the most dangerous place in America was, was Oakland, my hometown, and Ferguson, I was like, oh, he's talking about black people. So we know it's, it's everybody. Right. It's everybody. It's, right. So, so I think that um, there absolutely could be a chance that Trump could win. Right. And this, on the, in terms of the numbers of that, right, so that... Um, if Trump were to win New Hampshire, which is already apparently looking like it, you know, which is you know almost all white state in terms of whether where it's it's going to go, so a small number of votes there. But if you were to combine that, then Obama only won Ohio, Virginia, and Florida by a combined two hundred ninety-two thousand votes. Obama got two hundred thousand more votes in Ohio in twenty twelve than he did in two thousand eight with a massive investment, 700 full-time staff on the ground. So if we don't come out, we only won Florida by 75,000 votes. If we don't come out to vote in large numbers in Ohio, Florida, and Virginia, then and Trump picks up a state like New Hampshire, he wins the election. See, I see Maria just nodding. Absolutely. How is it that the knowledge that is represented by the two of you in this room isn't being heard by the decision makers who sit on enormous amounts of money. I think I think you wrote it was a billion dollars raised and spent in the last election cycle. By How much? the president alone, two point seven billion total. So we're looking at this year being about the same or more. About the same, sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, are are people listening? Well, they're not listening. Here's an idea. What there's been all this discussion around. Um, what are we going to do about the uh, Democratic Party leadership? Why don't we? Uh, move forward into the future by selecting a new chair of the Democratic National Committee, someone like, oh, I don't know, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Bill Clinton, Maria Tavestin. <laughs> <laughs> with, Mar- with Maria running the, 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 the committee, it would be a whole different ball. Would what, whole what would you do differently? Let me just what say, let me just, let me just say, yeah. so, I mean, I said that, well, not even that that jokingly, frankly, but that, so Maria had a meeting, and I, you know, uh, uh, came along with her with the Democratic Party ex- leadership in 2010, I believe it was. And the question then was, what's the plan with the Latino voters? And they, we were told explicitly by leadership of the Democratic Committee that um, 
um, we've dismantled the constituency desk. We don't have specific areas that are focused on those voters anymore. And so I think it's just that they actually believe this mindset that we are in a post-racial world. And people continue to believe that the most, again, the most important voter is the white swing voter, that all the resources have to go towards changing the minds of the conservative, the moderate to conservative white swing voters. And that's how you have to focus your attention. Even the progressive groups do that. I mean, even our friends, you know, places like Move On, and the, the mindset is we have to educate these people around why they're voting against their economic interest. Well, yeah, we've already seen the initial commercials coming out of Hillary Clinton's campaign. No, the, the independent expenditure. Oh, these yeah. is the independent expenditure supporting Hillary Clinton for president that really are a collection of messages about how bad Trump is. Right. But the new American majority already recognizes that Trump right. is bad. And so, I'm no surprise to anybody, I am a very strong supporter of Hillary Clinton. And what I am worried about is um, that it isn't enough to, to highlight Trump in terms of Latinos, you actually have to have an aspirational, a visionary, an optimistic vision of why you are running for president and communicate that. Now, I know she has that. I know why she's running for president. But somehow, other people are making choices about um, what the message should be. And, um, And one other example is, going back to the Hispanic electorate, Um, I was really upset with the New York primary when the first ad that the campaign did in New York, again, I'm not involved, so I can critique. Yeah, we can critique. You're you're a commentator, so you can commentate. Was that was um, uh, a focus on immigration. Um, for with a very nice story of a Dominican who's done really well, except that New York, yeah, there's an increasing Dominican for whom uh, population, but the majority are Puerto Rican who are U.S. citizens. The fact that, and, and they speak English, a number of them, Puerto Rico's going, you know, through uh, very hard times. Um, I did not see a, you know, what was the English ad? What would, uh, but to the, whom? And to whom? And tone deaf. That, Not really an understanding of the electorate. I mean, going back to Florida, I'm desperate to find out what's your, Almost 300,000 Puerto Ricans have moved from the island to Orlando, Tampa area. You know, whoever figures out how to motivate them to vote— could win the election. Well, and we've got a, a center race. Now we're, we're talking about it's not just the presidential at stake. Exactly. Yeah. So in the floor, there are uh, seven Senate seats up in where the Republicans hold that Senate seat, but it states that Obama won in 2012. And so uh, Florida is one of those key areas. It's, an, it's going to be actually an open Senate. It's Marco Rubio's Senate seat. And it's a total opportunity for a damn pickup because Obama won those, won those states. And so we should be able to win those if we understand who the electorate is and if we invest in a smart fashion in communicating with and organizing and turning those people out. I mean, the question that I have, um, especially because both of you have been in closed-door rooms, you've worked, uh, Maria, worked for the administration, uh, what is happening that people are not listening? I think that it has... Let me say, first of all, I've never been in a... I've been in a lot of closed-door rooms. I've never been in a room where people said, okay, how are we going to spend $100 million now? Yeah. That's the room I've not been in. Yeah. Where is that room? <laughs> we need to have access to that room because that's real power. That's right. what power. New American majority, we have the electoral, as, as you lay out in your book, 
um, Steve, we have the electoral electoral uh, majority. We can actually um, elect presidents and senators, but do we have that kind of power? And and what I'm hearing is not yet. Not yet, for reasons that have to do as much with not. I I will say not malevolence. It's more confidence in one's view of the world. Arrogance is another way of saying that. Is that another way of saying (laughs) it? Of folks who who really, they've been around the block, they um, know what they know. And so uh, particularly, the other thing that's very wrong with American politics, and I always want to stress this point because we focus on Latinos and the underperformance in registration and voting, but we need to remind ourselves across the country, Voter participation is at the lowest of any industrialized country. Now, granted, there are states that are taking real efforts to make it even more difficult, whether, you know, shortening early voting or making it, you know, requiring voter ID cards, you name it. But even then, a big part of our population is turned off by politics. And that is actually very dangerous for our democracy. So the other thing is the campaigns... uh, and Obama was the one who, who changed the view, but most campaigns think it's about spending on television and negative advertising and just radio and TV, especially TV. Well, that's easy because I can just, as a consultant, do one ad, run it, I make, and, and the way the consultancies get paid, you're making money off of that. You never leave your house. You, right. But to actually get to our communities, especially Latinos, especially, you know, talk to Asian Pacific is you got to go talk to them where they are find find trusted messengers people they trust that takes money in organization. Obama did it in 2008. Right. Yeah. But you're talking I, I, about a, pr- a political industrial complex type thing. Oh, absolutely. And this is why I use the, the apartheid uh, frame of reference increasingly. Right? So, I, mean, I am increasingly coming to understand, particularly as these numbers have come out and I've seen how the money is being spent poorly and without uh, um, you know, evidentiary basis for this is how we should be spending it. I'm coming to understand why Andy Young said what he said, which I – uses the title of one of the chapters of the book around smart-ass white boys, right? I have a chapter called Fewer Smart-Ass White Boys. And it's like, and I, I, can, I can only imagine. I wasn't there with Martin Luther King. I didn't do the civil rights uh, voting drives back in the 60s and then apply those methods to get elected to Congress and get elected to mayor and then sit in an actual room with people making the budgetary determinations and be ignored. And that is what led Andy to say that he's trying to tell them how to do it right, but they're not listening. They're a bunch of smart-ass white boys, and they think they know everything. So that's Andy's experience, 1984, 30 years ago. And now here we are where 75% or more of the money is targeting white swing voters when there are more voters of color who voted and then didn't turn out. And the upside is all within the voters of color's population. 79% of voters of color historically have voted for the Democrats. And so how do you rationalize that? How do you rationalize it? But also, I don't even think those of us who are in the new American majority, people of color plus progressive whites, even know this about our own selves. Uh, How do we get that uh, how do we get that word out? Because when I talk to folks, they say, you know, the problem is that we don't vote. Right. It's our fault. Right. Yeah, that was definitely the case in 2014 when uh, there were so many losses and, and, and Hispanics got blamed for not coming out. Well, nobody came to talk to them. And I think I've, um, I might not use the word apartheid, but I have come to the conclusion. 
I mean, it's a strong word. Well, it's a very like, it's a, what do you say, call? You can say, Wait. Steve is out there saying it's apartheid. <laughs> well, I actually am slowly coming to the realist, to the view that the folks in charge um, and others are not really interest, interested in real political empowerment. They want to control our votes. Ooh. That's really... That's- that's really what I feel because here's the thing, especially when it comes to Latino votes, why there's not investment. The thing is, if you target the African-American community and you do it smartly, 90 plus percent is going to vote Democrat. I mean, that's what that bottom line. And, and I, you know, I learned this uh, from Steve's book. People of color are overwhelmingly Democrat. On the Hispanic side, um, it can be 70 percent can be 77. I'm trying to remember what it was for Obama in uh, 08. He was, well, he was 71, which is high. Yeah. So it's, so right there, you actually have to persuade and per- persuade Latinos. I can't understand why wouldn't you think of Hispanics as your new swing voter and spend the same amount of money to, um, that you're willing to spend on white voters. So, so why isn't that? Why, why, why not that investment? That's why I sometimes think, well, it's because they want to be... Sh- If we build real political power, we might actually demand that the state of California reinvest in the University of California and raise taxes and make sure we have not 48th in public school financing for K through 12 right there with Mississippi when we've got the eighth largest economy in the world. See, and right there, right there, that that righteous indignation about what should be happening with our politics on our behalf, that is, I think, what motivates new American majority voters – and I just, you know, how do we, how do we continue to build on that and make it millions of us, you know, so that we understand right. and there is, I think the, the lesson I do feel that from this uh, election, even going back to the, even the Wall Street piece, the, the biggest takeaway, one of the biggest takeaways I have from the Bernie Sanders phenomenon is there is an appetite for strong progressive politics. People are ready to talk about big change. And I worry that the elected officials are going to be behind that curve. And so we saw it in uh, California that there's a national movement, fight for 15, raise the minimum wage, and Jerry Brown didn't want to go there. He didn't want to support $15 minimum wage. But then he got put on the ballot, and then he's, and he, could, he at least is smart enough to look at the electorate and say, well, these people are going to vote for that, so we'll go ahead and pass the legislation. So that in terms of offering a policy agenda that speaks to people's real conditions and inspires them and captures their imagination, that's the other aspect of what has to happen um, to turn our folks out. Yeah, you know, I was really struck when we, you know, you have so much expertise, Marie, on the whole issue of immigration reform, but nothing's getting done in Congress now. And I'm understanding that lots of work is getting done in state legislatures. And uh, what are the opportunities there? Well, I think we need to think of what's happening at the state level as basically Band-Aid approaches. You know, thank goodness it took Governor Brown a couple of years, but he signed the Trust Act in order to limit the the cooperation between state and local law enforcement with ICE. But but they can't – states cannot give legal permanent status to – uh, any undocumented person. Now, what we need to understand, even if we get a Democrat in the White House, unless we change the House, we're, they, they blocked us. The majority of members of Congress, Senate and House, we would have passed at least some immigration reform. Right. 
And so what, here's what we should be thinking. Again, not just for this cycle. We should have our eye on the 2020 census and the 2020 redistricting. Why is that small minority of um, Tea Party conservatives in the House running to the right? Because they don't have people of color in their district. Right. Right. But I would actually add, so I agree with all that, but I would also add, I've come to increasingly think that it is undemocratic, if not, I'm wondering, is it actually illegal, the way in which the House has blocked immigration reform? That the way that Congress is supposed to be strict constructionists, these original intent people around the Constitution, the point of the United States government, the way it's set up, if a bill is passed in one house, it goes to the other house, it gets considered in that house and voted up or down. And so for them to just not even bring it for a vote, knowing it would have – and that is so undemocratic that I think that they could be painted into a corner. And certainly Paul Ryan trying to look all reasonable. So we should be using that as well in terms of as a lever to try to get this passed um, earlier even than the 2020 piece. But it seems the rules of the game, to your point, are really changing around politics where we have uh, – we, we have a, a Congress is doing things, you know, like refusing to even consider Merrick Garland for a Supreme right, Court exactly. justice. How is that possible? We have a we have a uh, you know a, a Trump ascendancy where I hear Republicans say he's not a real Republican and yet he's he's the party's nominee. I mean he figured out a way to hack that system and change the rules of the game. Um, in what ways do we need to be thinking about uh, the rules of the game that is, as it existed, the ones that ignore the new American majority and people of color? How do we need to be thinking about changing the rules ourselves? Yeah, the, uh, I guess part of it would be, it's hard to say take the gloves off if, because we're not in that place right now. Uh, but we do have to, we really, as a country, have to find our way back uh, to civil discourse. And I actually think redistricting, when you, I, I feel like we can't even fight for progressive causes until we, we're fighting for the center. The center now is so to the right. And the only way we get to the center so that we can then move to the left is having elected officials having to appeal to a broad group of people. And that's why the thing about electing the president is you actually can't get elected with just one group. There aren't enough white voters to elect a president of the United States unless communities of color stay home. But what President Obama showed us is you have to appeal to a broad range of people. And that's how it should be. He's represent, he or she will represent the entire country and we come in different yeah, I just, you know, For people who don't know politics uh, like you do, though, redistricting is what? Just how do you break that down, that process? What's happening in 2020 that we should be aware of? The census will take place again in 2020. They'll count the whole country through the census to see where the population is, how many people live within each state, and then you draw the lines for congressional districts based upon that, um, census, that census tape. And so then you figure out – you configure – it's a big battle around do the, do those lines. What's the partisan outcome of how that actually all operates? Oh. And- and the state of California, by the way, has a one Arizona, I think it's also another, has a commission. So it's not the incumbent office holders in the state legislature that draw those lines. As a result of what California did in 2011, 
we have more competitive seats, at least three or four more competitive seats, like um, Ami Berra, um, Dr. Raul Reese in, in, in Palm Springs. So it causes people to have to appeal to a broader group. Right. I want to come back to that so question about the, about the uh, hacking the system, et cetera, on that. Um, uh, there's a reason Maria was nominated to be ambassador because she's more diplomatic, right? Then I think <laughs> that. Um, so I think couple, part of the way that you shift the center is by you plant a strong pull on the left and you pull it back over to the to the to the center and towards those. Is how they did it on the right. They increasingly outlandish positions on the right. So, well, this is not what I'm proposing, but it is a quasi-amusing, illustrative point. So they're all like, you know, I mean, it's part of our civil discourse now that we should round up 12 million people who don't have their uh, papers and ship them out of the country and we should have a religious test for who can actually come into the This is just part of the, the discourse. Is that because it was repeated without... Uh, without being challenged. Without and being then, challenged in and the so media. So why don't we start talking about the fact that the whole question of who is legal in a country that was stolen from its original inhabitants and where the wealth was developed with stolen labor should actually be open and up for discussion. And so at what point – and there are – I mean it's uh, – people say yeah, that – Yeah, I can see people getting mad and you – Well, know, it was a long time ago, it, yeah. et cetera, but that's not even a long time ago. There is the um, – Mount Rushmore is on land that is owned by the Native Americans. And there was a legal dispute that was before the U.S. – before the, the federal courts that found that – the Native Americans had the rights to that land and, are, and they were saying they're entitled to a billion dollars and there's a billion dollars set aside to pay them for that and they're not taking the money. They're saying how do you take money for something that's not for sale? And so this, this history of this question of legality and then at what – people say it was a long time ago. At what point, when does the statute of limitations run and stop? on illegal acts. And so why, when does it run then if you came here without papers? When does it run for you? And so we have to like shift the debate around that to some of those questions. And we have an opportunity to do that between if we turn out and vote, we should win – the Democrats should win the White House and Democrats should take back the Senate. And so then we can move a policy agenda which could be much more far-reaching that can then push – and I think we should be much more – aggressive around trying to paint these different house people um, and in, in, inflict pain in their districts for taking these unreasonable positions in ways that we don't currently do. And I think the combination of those things could be very beneficial um, in terms of moving the policy debate in this country. I mean, we've seen uh, Bernie Sanders uh, and supporters have a policy agenda that was way far to the left of where the Democratic Party is. Is that part of that poll, like pulling the center left? Yes, absolutely. And so clearly there's a hunger in a, uh, for people who are going to champion uh, inequa- uh, issues of inequality and actually take that on. That has broad political resonance. So let's take that further, right? And so let's look at – one of the things I you know, try to make the argument for in the book, let's look at a wealth tax. The top – you can end poverty in this country without as- asking the 99% of the, of the country to pay a dime more in taxes. And that's instituting a wealth tax, not an income tax. So it's what do you have in assets? So the top one percent has thirteen million each. You know, on average, thirteen million dollars in assets. If you're at that financial level, if we instituted a two percent wealth tax, that would generate five hundred billion dollars a year. Think tanks have shown it takes two hundred and seventy billion to lift everybody up out of poverty. And so, what what's the counter argument to that? Asking people who have thirteen million dollars a year. 
and who should be able to make 10% on that money to only make 8% on that money, and we can end poverty within this country without having to impact corporations and raise, you know, they always say, oh, well, then it's going to hurt jobs, et cetera. This, isn't, this is just quality of life and the, of, the rich, of the rich. We've been hearing, though, that the reason politicians don't take bold stands is because it'll never fly, they'll never get the support, they won't get the votes, et cetera, et cetera. And here's why, because I think we need to acknowledge that underneath why these bold ideas don't get traction, you know, why the right was so successful in in uh, complaining against the death tax, otherwise known as the estate tax. Uh, Wait, they called the estate tax oh, death tax. They, they ha- we we take a page from exactly. how the the, the, the right wing did, but in terms of what they called things, it's exactly. very confusing even for right. voters. Right, because yeah. a te- death tax, which basically would affect was like a little over a thousand people, thirteen hundred sort of families or mm-hmm. that who would who are who would have assets in excess of five million dollars. I don't know that many people who have assets in excess of five million dollars. And yet, what's ha- what happened over the last forty years is an absolute shifting of of the common sense the framework that Americans have from from we are all in it together that we are in fact a community to one that is you rise and fall by your own bootstraps you are poor because you made the wrong decisions exactly. you dropped out of school you had a baby and i just gave a speech at the Columbia School of Social Work the commencement speech and i'm a perfect example of that American success story. Farm worker fields from the Central Valley to working in the White House. Mm. And for Republicans, good for you, girl. You did it all by yourself. No, I did not do it by myself because California invested in public schools. I was able to get a law degree without going into debt at UC Berkeley because we we had a commute. We believed. So isn't it interesting that just when the demographic changes are happening in our country, it's all rise and fall all by yourself because I'm not going to share. I'm not going right. to contribute. Which, right, and which is a completely ahistorical, right? So if you actually look at um, the, some of the different like works that uh, Walter Isaacson has written, the Steve Jobs book, and then the innovators, the internet itself, the computer industry itself, it was a product of government inter, uh, intervention and investment. There would be no internet. There would be no tech billionaires without have, with, unless the federal government had played the activist involved role that it did to create this platform upon which people made all this money and now who want to turn around and say government should leave us alone. I'm really struck by how much of what you're saying is rooted in what we've already done and what's possible. It's so with looking back and, and looking forward. That's the message that I think has to has to get out there. I don't think people are, are hearing that. Right. And they, well, they go together because – and that's the reason that we have the inequality in our society because we have to look back. And it's not it, – it, the, the single most pernicious thing that Reagan did was incul- inculcate the, the, the thinking around what Maria was saying is that blaming poor people for poverty. But if – so that's one viewpoint which then leads to a set of, set of policies or lack of policies. But if your understanding is that the reason there's inequality is because of government action and discrimination from the red redlining to the GI Bill 
to discrimination. I mean, I didn't even know I was re- researching the book. I thought all this legal, all racial discrimination was outlawed with Brown versus Board of Education in the 1950s. It wasn't. It was only in education that Brown versus Board of Education eliminated discrimination. It was perfectly legal to engage in discrimination in corporate America until 1964 when you passed the Civil Rights Act. And so that's the year that I was born. And so the whole infrastructure around who got their positions and who was established was created at a time period of widespread legal discrimination within the country. And we can you can extend that to say that our political system as it stands now was built on those same assumptions. You know. It was built on those assumptions and then it was determined by pe- the power positions from people who arose to those power positions through that discriminatory apparatus. And so that's the looking back part. But we have that current yeah, – looking back created the current inequality. But the way to redress the current inequality is to look forward to the power and potential of the new American majority. Now we have the numbers to be able to move forward and address these things. I mean we started off this conversation and I think, Maria, one of the things you were just like, we have got to direct the investment this year, 2016, in order to defeat Trump and to increase our political power on on, on the progressive side, but uh, uh, most of the people hearing this are not rich people who are going to be, you know, d- directing those hundreds of millions of dollars. So, what do we do? What's well, for the I rest of us? Well, I actually do think it's important um, to create a culture of civic engagement. And it's very. And I found myself doing this. I had just gotten off a conference call on Latino voting, and I realized, okay, I'm operating at this level, you know, at a national level. But wait a minute, I've got three roof. I've got my roof being repaired right now, and there's three Latinos, and I'm going to just ask them. Sure enough, they've been in this country 30 years. They're citizens. They've never voted. Mm. You know, three guys. They're doing well, speaking English well. It was like, okay. Why haven't you voted? Well, we don't really know what the process is. No, no, no. You can't sit back. And it starts, I think, by just asking our friends and neighbors, come on, guys, are we going to sit this out? Uh, No, we are not going to sit this out. And meanwhile, the rest of us and others can keep trying to within, you know, there are so many Americans are organization prone. I mean, if there's an issue, we organize around it. That is not true in many countries. And so that beautiful civil society, unfortunately, has not always connected to the electoral process. So we should be asking our women's clubs or whatever, our our book club, are you you voting? What are you thinking about this? We should be be creating this culture because otherwise – the fewer and fewer people who vote means that a minority of Americans are making the decisions for our country, and that's not democracy. Right. And I would even add to that in terms of the notion of civic engagement is also holding people accountable. And so that if you look at the sweep of the past 50 years in this country, so Fannie Lou Hamer and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party had to storm the floor at the 1964 Democratic Convention to be able to have a uh, integrated um, delegation seated. Then, you know, we moved, elected uh, Barack Obama in 2008. So this whole notion around who this the Democratic Party in particular exists to serve, I think we have to take that on. And we, and we have the opportunity. And I think we have to engage in the struggle to harness and really put in place in leadership people who come from and are committed to these communities. And so that, pl- that plays itself out 
if you're waging a campaign around who's going to be the vice presidential pick, are we going to finally de- – Who should be a vice president? Are we going to finally desegregate the vice presidency as a you know, policy and political matter, but just as an electoral matter, it, you have – Whoever is going to be the nominee is going to be an older white person, and that person has got to be complemented by a younger, inspiring person of color. And so that's uh, that's some level of signal, but also that at, we now live in an age where there's so much social media and technology, we can, it's more possible to hold entities accountable. People can tweet, people can post on Facebook, do your Snapchats, petitions around the vice presidency, around how is the Democratic Party spending its money, why isn't it actually investing in uh, people of color. And all of that can lay the groundwork to actually then to, in fact, run somebody to uh, become the head of the Democratic Party, to transform it and take those resources and finally invest in the communities of color in an ongoing permanent way in a way that it's been lacking. I really want to reaffirm that point about accountability. For too long, we've treated elections in this country about the candidate and election day and that's it and then we go about our business Election, we need to hold our elected officials accountable and we need to be engaged on a regular basis with them and, and utilize that civil society. If, if the issue we most care about, there are groups out there who can inform you about the pressing issues because otherwise they get um, what we know about power, unfortunately, and human beings, is that power does corrupt and the only way you can ensure that the idealism that, that does draw many of us to politics um, continues is if you keep your feet on the ground. And the way you keep your feet on the ground is by having the voters keep you on the ground. See, and we're not conceding anything is what I'm getting from um, both you, um, Steve and Maria. We're not conceding an election. We're not throwing up our hands. We're, we're saying there's a path forward. Well, there's a path forward. There's very much a path, path forward. And I would I would argue that we've never been this close to actually taking institutional power, and so we were able to actually get Obama elected and reelected, which is you know historic and transformative. But the infrastructure has not changed yet. But there are enough of us in these various positions, and who I, I think there's enough of a movement now that that's the next level. It's not just the individual at the very top of the government; it's those who run the whole political infrastructure, the government infrastructure. That has to reflect the rainbow, the new American majority. And we can take that. And I genuinely feel that is what's the, you know, people talk about a, a you know, the movement being in this relay race. People, you know, pass the baton. So people went from Selma to Montgomery with the baton and passed that on and be able to get people to vote. I think our leg of this race is to take control of the Democratic Party and make it actually reflect and serve the new American majority. The only thing I would add to that is change is uncomfortable or indeed frightening for most people. And when we talk about transforming our institutional structures, there's always a fear, especially by those who currently hold those positions, of where am I, where am I going? And what I always want to stress is we're talking about a progressive agenda I mean, the American society is an experiment. It's imperfect, but I'll take it any day over any other place on the planet because we're expanding what our society is. And that means we can rejoice in our diversity but really work to show 
the commonalities because at the end of the day, I have not seen us met or talked to a single person or family who basically didn't want the same thing for their families, their neighborhoods, their communities. Why are we not able to achieve that? Yeah, that's so... I have two minds. So uh, part of that, yes, that's back to the diplomatic Maria. Then there's a <laughs> younger viewpoint, like as expressed by our, my friend Jessica Bird. She wrote this piece saying, get out of my damn chair, right? <laughs> and so there's that viewpoint. But I do think at the end of the day that Maria is ultimately correct. And so that's where, even as a, as a strategic and tactical matter, we shouldn't be chasing after these conservative white swing voters, people saying, well, don't, you don't care about them. No, I do care about them. I'm not going to waste our time, energy, and resources getting their vote. But once we take power, then we will pass universal health care, which will benefit all of them. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. And the conversation about power is where, where I want to leave it. I've been so inspired by the conversation with both of you. And just a, a quick question, how pe- people can um, get involved and, and uh, connect with your work, Maria? I'm... Uh you see Berkeley and you see Berkeley. I'm a professor. I'm teaching uh, Latinos and the law this summer, which has got me working hard. Uh, yeah, I'm at UC Berkeley and also at the Berkeley Food Institute. That's great. That's great. Um, and I can be. I'm on Twitter at uh, Steve P Tweets. Um, I've got a Facebook author page. People can reach me through there. I've just shown my age and, and not being on social media. Yeah. <laughs> It's all good because everyone's in the movement. And I just want to thank you both for uh, this inaugural edition of our Democracy in Color podcast. Thank you both for your time and your energy and passion. In our next episode, I'll be in D.C. with some special guests. There's a new set of report cards out that will help us answer the question, are the Senate campaigns those key races that potentially could give Democrats the majority again? Are they set up to succeed or fail in reaching new American majority voters? Well, stay tuned to see if they're going to be bringing home good report cards this year. You can listen to future episodes of this podcast on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, and iTunes. If you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And tell a friend, a colleague, or a neighbor to tune in for that dose of political intelligence. This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. Democracy in Color is a project of PowerPack Plus. This episode was produced by Lulu Matute, recorded at the Grill Studios in Emeryville, California, with technical support from Anthony Hernandez. Special thanks to our team member, Mike McGeary, and our special guests, Steve Phillips and Maria Echeveste. <laughs>